We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thursday night football recap and a look ahead at all of the zero RB options, how their values changed in week one, how they might change going forward, what the key indicators are. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. Ben Gretsch, you can find the Stealing Signals newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work over at Rotoviz. Sean, you had a great idea for a topic today. I think you said you were working on a piece on it. Correct me if not, if, if I'm wrong. But to talk through, I've gotten a lot of questions this week as we talk to our listeners in draft season about drafting pretty running back light teams that hit on a lot of running backs in the late single digit rounds, early double digit rounds. And we talk, you know, something I emphasized a lot this August was that roster churn and, and trying to stack your bets with these running backs. We talked about guys like Ronald Jones going into week one as a guy who could have a situation change just by being active or playing obviously nothing like that happened for him but you've had some interesting thoughts on how to value him even after week one and now we've seen week two for him but i've got a lot of questions about this roster churn how to approach it how to think through these backs so i think it's a super fun topic to dig into but first what were your initial thoughts on uh on thursday night football well my first thought as a chiefs fan is i'm glad the team that got outplayed won because we need the chiefs to win that game I do think one of the main takeaways from this game is that teams that think they're going to be able to outscore Kansas City and outscore the Chargers, I mean, they're going to need to be very good teams all the way across, which is what you get from the Buffalo Bills. It is what you're probably going to get from the Cincinnati Bengals, despite their week one debacle. But Kansas City and LAC, they may have two of the best defenses in the NFL. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on all of the rest of their opponents. It was a huge game for the chiefs. They have the game at home. You need to beat the chargers who could be in the mix for the number one seed. Now, if Justin Herbert is injured, then it's a little bit of a different story, but even after it looked like he couldn't walk, like maybe he'd had a little bit of a brain fog moment there where he could have just taken a couple steps and gotten that key first down he comes out on the next play and throws just a rocket that is incredibly accurate down the middle of the field to a guy who was more or less covered i mean there was a window there and he got it in but 
I mean, some of the the plays that these guys made because neither one of their receivers were getting open. The Chiefs guys were all covered up the entire game. It was one of those games where the exact opposite of last week where suddenly you think, well, I mean, maybe they will miss <laughs> Tyree Kill because I mean, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, you can understand why the Packers were like, we're not going to match that price for him. Well, Cole Hardman has never been a guy who should have been a factor in this offense. To have him as a focal point last night was... Well, it was, it was kind of triggering, yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, it, this is probably one of the five worst games that I've ever seen Patrick Mahomes play, and yet he wins against one of the best teams in football, in part because he makes that incredible throw to Watson there as he's forced to move up. I mean, there was so much that happened in this game. Mike Williams maybe not a guy who can really get open, but, man, he, can he make contested catches in a game where Keenan Allen didn't play, if you were on Mike Williams, as I was, and you, I think, moderately were, if you're on Gerald Everett, and at least for two weeks, I'm very glad that have that incredibly high yeah. exposure. I mean, Mike Williams has to make those kinds of catches and those kinds of plays in a game where Keenan Allen isn't out there, and he did. Yeah, yeah, he had to come through in this game, and he did, like you said. And Everett, all of that work was very encouraging. He looks like he's going to be a clear hit in this offense to me. Joshua Palmer has another quiet game, gets the TD late, but really salvaged his day, uh, you know, at the end. Ultimately, you know, you can call it garbage time, whatever. They almost recovered the onside kick. I mean, it, it almost mattered. People were saying, why was Herbert still out there? I probably would have taken him out too, but if they recover that onside kick, you're not asking that question. I mean, they would have had a chance to, to beat a division rival at home. That's a huge game for them. And, and obviously Herbert didn't want to come out. What a game or two. Uh, that third and one where he could have just ran for the first down and was in so much pain that he just sort of threw the ball into nowhere and then comes back on the next play. And for anyone who wasn't watching the game on, I mean, this was the coolest thing from last night for me probably was Amazon Prime now has the Thursday night package. They had an alternate feed that was the all 22 with uh, live advanced stats, next gen stats, really interesting stuff. Like right around halftime, they showed how, Mike Williams had run hitch routes on X amount of his routes and five of his catches in the first half were on these hitch routes. It was a lot more than you thought. They were running a ton of hitches with him, apparently. Um, just like a fun little tidbit in the middle of the game. It was an incredible broadcast. So anyone who didn't notice that or didn't hear about that or didn't see the talk about it on Twitter next week, it seems like they're going to have that every week on Amazon. They have these alternate feeds. Next week, look for that. It was called uh, Prime something. I can't remember the name, but look at their alternate feeds on your on your, your service provider or whatever you have because that was you know, free advertising for Amazon here, but that was the coolest broadcast I've ever watched. And the reason I bring that up is that play after the Justin Herbert injury, they had an interesting camera angle. I think they were behind Herbert for that play. Most of them were you know, your typical all 22, but I think they were behind him and he threw that ball at the seam and you couldn't see the receiver. It was interesting to get the look at the quarterback's view. I believe that was the angle. Maybe it was the inverse and you couldn't see the ball, but I'm pretty sure that was the angle. And you get to look at his view and you can't even see the receiver. You know he's there, but there's two trailing defenders and the ball is coming in right outside of the trailing defenders, you know, reach. And then you see the arms come up and catch it. It's like, how do you throw that pass? One play later, you're an obvious excruciating pain. I mean, that was, you want to know, you know, what makes Justin Herbert special? That that throw alone is enough, but one play after what happened on third down, on a fourth and one, I mean, just the cojones on that guy. That was incredible. A good indication of why the superstars are superstars. 
and why the non-superstars can't move the ball. Because NFL defenses don't give you that many clear options to where you know you just move the ball down the field like it's no big deal. The defenses created some real hurdles in this game, and, and it was a fun game as a result. A lot of back and forth, and the pick six, the highest leverage play in that game, also some interceptions that Chargers players could have made but did not play a pretty big role. And there were a couple picks from Mahomes where penalty flags were thrown. On top of that, there was the one with Marcus Valdez-Scantling that Twitter was up in arms about, thought it was offensive pass interference. The only real angle we got was from behind the end zone, and you can see Valdez-Scantling's arm on the DB, and then he ends up kind of pushing him away. I still thought that was a clear defensive penalty. I don't know. I'm kind of curious what you thought, because Valdez-Scantling was changing direction you see his arm on his shoulder, but it actually they kind of like tussle for a second. Like if he's just tossing him, his arm just moves freely and, and goes through. The reason his arm kind of caught is you watch that back. The DB, I think, loses his own footing and he's kind of beat. And I think he reaches out and grabs, but we can't see it from behind him on that shot. Cause that's why, you know, MVS's arm just kind of stopped. And then eventually MVS kind of pushes him off and then stumbles after because they're both grabbing each other. But he's obviously making the in and out route and making the cut. And to me, it looked like the DB actually sort of stumbled on, on his own feet and then grabbed. And that's 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 a legal contact, even if MVS then pushes after that point. Um, anyway, I just want to throw that thought out there because I saw a lot of people saying there's no way, there's no way this could pop, including big football accounts. So maybe I'm you know completely wrong. And I, I think there were some people in my mentions that were telling me I was wrong on Twitter. But uh what what was did you think that was a offensive penalty? Everyone no. thought that was a no, I mean there are the thing that bothers me the most watching these games, and again, this comes as a fantasy manager and as a fan who wants to see scoring, but you have so many different plays where the defenders interfere all the way down the field and then people fall down or the offensive guy is moving his arms to just kind of break out of the hold of the defender and you get called for offensive pass interference. This was something where Tony Gonzalez would just be wrapped up on every one of his routes as he would, you know, try and run down the field. And Tony Gonzalez, people think of, you know, Travis Kelsey now, and, and obviously a lot of comparisons to those two guys. Tony Gonzalez, when he would try and run his routes, he would do it within the context of a bear hug from linebackers, more or less every play. And every once in a while, he would fight out of those. And he'd be a call for offensive pass interference. He'd be like, the linebacker has him <laughs> in a hug. Yeah, back then, the legal contact defensive holding stuff was not – I mean, that was a big point of emphasis in 2014. I've written about that before, how that kind of changed the way – you saw immediate increases in, in – pass rate has always been increasing, but in pass efficiency starting right after they started enforcing that. But, yeah, you're talking about the pre – illegal contact defensive holding were penalties, but they didn't call them. But it was the pre – like, hey, we're actually going to enforce these rules era. And that was one, too, where – I don't believe we talked a ton about the Jets on our previous show, but there was an unfortunate play there where Elijah Moore scores a touchdown and kind of right as he makes a move to catch the ball, he has his hand on the shoulder of the defensive back right as the defensive back suffers a serious knee injury. And so the, the main thing right there is that you're just very – sorry that the defender blew out his knee because from a human perspective, that's the main thing from that play, but also because of the timing of it, Elijah Moore gets called for an offensive pass interference where he didn't, 
there was nothing there to have made that call. And, you know, from a game perspective, from a fantasy perspective, from a betting perspective, and all those things do make a difference. The NFL officials need to make the right call just in general. And so to have offensive pass interference, you know, we had the phantom pass interference on Brandon Ayuk where, you know, he's got the guy beat and basically can't even reach him and gets called for offensive pass interference. There has to be fairness, right? I mean, you can't not let the defensive backs make contact or have, you know, hand fighting or get there early and then also allow the offensive guys to push off and to do those kinds of things. So it's not like offensive pass interference in and of itself is a problem or that it shouldn't be adjudicated correctly, but I think it does need to be the correct call. Some of these guys who are being held the whole game and they fight out of a hold and they get called for offensive pass interference. I, that to me would be very frustrating as a player because just because there is an emphasis on illegal contact, there is an emphasis on defensive pass interference. That doesn't mean all of those plays are getting called. We saw plenty again in week one where guys are being ridden all the way up and down the field. And it just happens too often for the officials to make every call. And so part of the gamble as a defensive coach, when you're building your scheme, when you're building your points of emphasis for the week, your game plan, and then the players themselves as they're going through the game is you're trying to kind of be right on that edge in terms of what's legal and what's not, because it's very difficult to cover NFL wide receivers. If there's no body contact or there's no hand kind of touching, it's the same thing. If you guard some superstar in a high school basketball game, you're not going to slow that guy down. if You don't have a little bit of a hand on that Jersey. Definitely. Uh, before we move on to the backs in this game, because that was really interesting and you had some fun thoughts about that. I, I also want to talk about Kansas City's pass catching core. We talked about obviously Mike Williams, Gerald Everett being the big part of what we saw from the Chargers. Kansas City's receivers look terrible. I mean, I know we saw a bad game from Mahomes, but it was interesting. And after week one, I felt like Everything we talked about this offseason, and you were very quick to note once they traded Tyreek and they had added all these weapons, you thought their offense might be even better. I thought you were really sharp on that call throughout the offseason. Now they're going to be better at their third pass-catching weapon, their fourth pass-catching weapon. That depth matters in the modern NFL. And they looked that way in week one, and it was everything that you know I had started to buy into, thanks to you, as I mentioned they looked like because they're able to attack from more ways and they have Patrick Mahomes, that they're going to be unstoppable. And then in week two, it looked like the sort of opposite thesis where because they don't have Tyreek Hill anymore and they just have a bunch of guys, Patrick Mahomes is going to struggle. And that was sort of the concern side of, of that equation that I think the market was more in on. MVS gave you nothing in this game if you're a Chiefs fan. I thought he ran really weak routes. I thought every pass sort of in his vicinity. He wasn't even trying to go after the ball. Super unimpressed by him. Juju Smith-Schuster, I was incredibly impressed within week one. He had the high A dot, was doing some stuff down the field. Looked like he had some of that old burst. I wonder if the short turnaround, you mentioned he had some knee like pain in August. I, I didn't read all those reports. I wonder if the short turnaround was an, was an issue for him because we didn't see anything from him down the field. We didn't see him winning on any routes and watching the all 22 stuff during the game that I was just referencing, didn't feel like he was creating much separation. He caught a couple drag routes, looked like his you know old Pittsburgh role. He had three catches on three targets for 10 yards. 
pretty sure those were all about two yards down the field. I haven't looked at his ADOP, but I'm pretty sure his ADOP will be like two yards. And I was so excited about his ADOP being over 10 last week. Uh, I think all of those were, you know, 3.3 yards per per catch, and he caught all of his targets. I'm pretty sure they all were within five yards. Uh, Mikko Hardman, you mentioned, he looked like the guy that was getting the most open. When Mikko Hardman looks like the guy getting the most open in your offense, you got to do something different. They bring in Justin Watson. He immediately, and he was getting a lot of buzz in August, immediately goes deep and and burns uh, J.C. Jackson, which they're talking on the broadcast how Richard Sherman, I think it was, said that, that he thinks J.C. Jackson's the best corner in the NFL. Justin Watson, your rotational fourth receiver or fifth receiver comes in, immediately scores a long touchdown on him. But I took that also as saying, hey, like if a guy's actually has a little bit of juice, then Patrick Mahomes is his quarterback. This is what it's supposed to look like. And I took all of this as saying, why is Sky Moore not playing yet? Like we talked about it last week. He only got a few snaps. He caught a 30-yard pass right away. I think from a purely analytical standpoint, we have to say this is a little bit of a red flag. I still obviously, I wrote in Steelers Signals this last week, he's a, a clear hold based on how good their offense looked in week one. and you have to expect, especially with his 30-yard catch in week one, whenever he gets out there and is a part of this offense, he could be a major factor in the 22 season, not somebody I'd be wanting to cut. And if you're in a shallow league where he was cut, somebody I think you want to try to add. But he doesn't play really at all in week two. He went out there for a play that got uh, called for delay a game and immediately came off the field, didn't even get to run that snap. I don't know if I saw him play an offensive snap. I'm sure he mixed in a couple times. But when the receiving core looks this bad, Sean, can you help me understand why they weren't? Going this guy more, I know it was a quick turnaround. I know he's a rookie and they're probably bringing him along slowly. But I think as far as an in-game adjustment is concerned, your guys are not getting open. Mahomes looks bad. The offense looks bad. How are you not rotating in your your second-round pick who has the 4-3-40 speed and had a 30-yard catch last week and all these things? I think it just purely comes down to what you said with the turnaround and the fact that they just didn't have plays in there for him. They didn't have plays within the game plan where he could factor into a route and have the play work so from that perspective you know you get a little bit disappointed and frustrated with them from a coaching perspective this isn't that different than the criticism we had for the arizona cardinals and not being ready to get trey mcbride out there and playing but in terms of how this offense has to evolve that's exactly what you said it has to be built around sky more because those other guys other than travis kelsey are peripheral players right you're going to have to use Juju and MVS, I mean, very differently, but for the things that they're good for, you have to use McCullough Hardman on the chest sweeps because he's not someone who catches well or is in the right spot down the field. The accuracy that Patrick Mahomes has to every other player versus the accuracy that he has to Hardman is night and day. It probably isn't Patrick Mahomes' fault in that situation. Before you go on, I saw a lot of people upset that Joshua Palmer was getting off target uh passes early felt the same exact way there there was a couple there was like a back shoulder where i was like palmer's probably supposed to come out of his break on that back shoulder a little quicker like he's falling away from the play and i I saw people on twitter saying oh josh palmer's getting all these off target passes i mean it looked to me like every every throw herbert threw to him looked terrible probably not just on justin herbert right these guys who are extremely athletic and never really emerge and i'm not saying that's going to be the case for josh palmer but there's a big skill element to playing the wide receiver position, not purely athleticism. And if you can never quite get that down, the chiefs are always talking about how Hardman is on the verge 
but I mean, you, you have to get there at some point. And it's frustrating to see them come out in the 2022 season and have him be such a focal point because I, I think a, an unbiased observer, someone who has not selected these guys in the draft and doesn't need to prove that the Hardman pick with DK Metcalf on the board wasn't a terrible pick that doesn't need to prove that Clyde Edwards Alaire wasn't a terrible pick with these other guys on the board would be looking at this a little bit differently. One of the frustrations that I had in this game, and you know, we don't want to necessarily be a broken record or spend a bunch of time on the same thing, but the chargers were able to get the chiefs to do what they wanted, which is to hand off to Clyde Edwards Alaire and punt a bunch in the first three quarters of this game. Now, CEH makes a couple of very nice receptions. He has the breakaway run at the end, which gives him from an efficiency perspective and a total yardage perspective, one of his best games. But having him out there in the first three quarters was a disaster for Kansas City because number one, you do get some carries to him that don't go anywhere. And number two, because you have forced the Chiefs into that as a potential avenue for the offense to run through, then you don't have the explosive plays. And then you turn around and you have to execute on some of these passing plays and the Chiefs were not doing that. The thing I think we're going to find and kind of what I open with is that these two defenses are awesome. And so the Chiefs and the Chargers are going to be much more effective almost all the rest of the season. But for everybody, and, and it's easy to criticize Juju and MVS and those guys because they're new, but this was not a huge game for Travis Kelsey either. And so from that perspective, the Chargers were really able to shut down everybody. There were people discussing that it might be a tough game for Kelsey coming in, the Derwin-James matchup. I think when they played last year, James was on him a ton and had success. Derwin-James, you know, one of those freak players, he, I think he – is listed as a safety, but is just so athletic and so big. He could basically be a defensive end if he wanted to be. He could play linebacker. He could play anywhere on the defense and is able to be a little bit of a headache for Travis Kelsey. It's kind of a known thing now between these divisional opponents. And that's what, to me, seemed to be the huge issue for the Chiefs is you've got a guy that can lock up Travis Kelsey, and now they have apparently have no one else who can win. But you you mentioned the, the, the CEH thing. We wanted to talk about these backs, too, and, and it kind of starts to pivot into – this zero RB running back theme. CH has a long run late. I felt the same way. I mean, we're we're biased, but I called CH a, a sell high last week after his two touchdowns receiving or both on design plays. And Jarek McKinnon ran more routes than him. He comes out, he has a four-catch game for 44 yards. Very good receiving line, frankly. Uh, and runs for 74 on the ground. It's another 15.8 PPR game. It's a it's a strong, solid CEH type game. And I didn't feel at all worried that I told people to sell. I, I think we're going to get the six-point games very soon because he's not as involved as you'd like to see, and I don't think he's actually that good. Other than the 52-yard run, he has seven carries for 22 yards, about three yards a carry. Pacheco was the one who ran really well in garbage time last week. They give him a third-and-one carry in a big spot. I think it was late in the first half. Maybe it was the third quarter. He gets stuffed. He has only two touches for six yards, two carries for six yards. I mean, he looks like he has burst, and, and I understand why they like him, but they tried to kind of use him in a, in a short yardage situation to get a, a key yard and, and couldn't get there. And it's one where, again, if, if it's blocked, then Pacheco at the second level I think is very exciting. If it's not blocked, then you run into some of these same issues that he had in college where he couldn't gain any yards. And you say, well, I mean – Rojo was tackled in the backfield in preseason a number of times, but he's somebody who one of the things that I mentioned in one of our 
running back advanced stats article during the offseason is that Ronald Jones had the lowest percentage of hit at the line of scrimmage of any running back in all of football last year. When you need someone to see that that's not blocked and has the agility to make the cut go somewhere else, we think that he needs to be out there. But it brings us into this kind of next question of projecting for one of the interesting offers that I got in trade last week was CH, Tony Pollard, and a pick for Travis Etienne. Etienne, someone who had a little bit of a controversial week one, in part because James Robinson looked just absolutely fantastic. And it gives you a little bit of a sense of why fantasy managers will at times be willing to bet on guys who are coming back from injury. Now, obviously, I, and to an extent, (laughs) my co-managers, bet on J.K. Dobbins. And as we record this on Friday, it looks like there's a pretty decent chance that he will suit up on Sunday. The other guys in that backfield looked, we'll just say, very mediocre last week. It was not one of these prototypical the Ravens can run the ball situations. If not week two, then week three looks, I mean, J.K. Dobbins is coming, but James Robinson is already here. He, for someone his size, his explosiveness is unreal. If he had not been, well, let me say it the other way. If he had been a second round pick, then he would be a top guy in fantasy right now because he has the size and the talent and the flexibility to justify that. So now that is a problem for Travis Etienne in the same way that A.J. Dillon is a problem for Aaron Jones. And with Travis Etienne, we don't have this track record that Aaron Jones has, <laughs> right? So when we're looking at how, and you don't have the Packers offense, there were some cool things that the Jaguars did. Trevor Lawrence looked a little bit better. If you have two elite running backs, that's going to help you as well, even if NFL football doesn't run through the running back position. I mean, you far prefer to have two superstar wide receivers. Etienne in this game is open in the end zone. Lawrence misses him. He's open for a second touchdown or a theoretical second touchdown. Another bad pass from Lawrence that Etienne should catch but drops. Who are some guys that you're looking at, some situations that you're looking at here where you think things have changed, players that you're looking to trade for? You know, the situation there with Etienne is I think this is actually a decent time to buy. I'm not surprised that we've got sort of a buy low offer on him. And and in part, even you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, I mean, this Jaguars offense versus the Chiefs offense, you know, should I actually pick up the Chiefs starter, especially if there are other parts to it? For me, one of the issues about that is that Tony Pollard, I think, is one of the guys who sees his value crater, even though the snap split between him and Ezekiel Elliott actually closer than I thought it was going to be, even as someone who is on Pollard and not Elliott, right? So even as a, a Pollard enthusiast, I thought he played more. But I also think that the outlook now is worse than you would have had to have thought going in. Yeah, he's more of a wait and see now for me. I don't, I don't think there's any way you could play him in the short term. The The James Robinson thing is going to be one of my biggest misses of the year. And I mean, I'm incredibly happy for him. Uh, and, and I had someone say to me, you know, I'll, I'll gladly miss on the next 20, you know, quick Achilles turnaround type players. And that's sort of a crass way of putting it, but at the same time, like that's sort of how I feel from an, from a strategy perspective of ranking him very low and not drafting him in any leagues. I didn't really, I don't really have a process issue with not necessarily being on him, but you put it really well when you talk about him as a player, he looked 
he is so talented. He's so smooth, right? And like we get like film discussion takes or, or terms, but he's a very smooth running back. He does the things you need to do when he catches the short touchdown. It looks so easy. It should look easy because it's a short little touchdown touch, you know, reception. But then you turn around and you see Travis Etienne drop the short little touchdown reception, and you talk about a guy like Ronald Jones who we love. And there's guys that don't make it look so easy, right? Well, but the, the ability to change directions for someone of Robinson's size, he's extraordinary. Yeah, he's he's very smooth in a way that ETN, frankly, in these first couple games has not been. ETN has looked uh, explosive. He's looked like he's had juice, but he's also looked a little herky-jerky. Robinson... His heart's beating a little fast in these first couple of Yes, it, you, can t- you can definitely tell that, absolutely. Robinson is uh, a guy that... And this isn't meant to be a knock. He's talented. But I think probably his best trade is he gives you what you want out of a running back. It's almost like what makes Leonard Fournette good, right? Like we we don't really necessarily love Leonard Fournette. But the thing that he does is he is in the right spot to catch the dump off every now and then. He takes what's blocked. He'll run hard and you'll run over guys sometimes because he's big. He does what you want your running back to do. He doesn't kill you, right? Robinson they got rid of Fournette gonna... because they saw James Robinson. They're like, this dude is better. Right. Robinson is not going to kill you, and he's actually a little bit more explosive. He's got a little more juice, I think, than Fournette. I would, I would, you know, you, you see them both play a little bit, and I think you can kind of say that Rob, I would rather have Robinson, you know, fully healthy at least. Obviously, the Achilles maybe changes things a little bit, but you have a player who does all of the little things correctly and then also probably has a little bit more juice, I think. But, um, yeah, no, it's interesting. He he's a guy who makes the easy things look easy, and that shouldn't be a compliment. And yet, it is. It's very much a compliment. Or maybe it should be. I don't know, but it's very much a compliment. We saw you know Michael Carter drop a short touchdown this week, and he's a guy who I think typically makes easy things look easy. But I mean, Robinson's incredibly reliable. You talked about the uh, the Chargers defenders, you know, dropping easy interceptions. Like these plays do happen. You're wearing all these pads and everything, and everything's going fast, and and sometimes you know. The ball just slips through. These NFL balls are actually really slick. I don't know if you, you know, people have ever held them, but they're actually like a lot different than the balls you play catch with in the backyard. Sometimes guys just don't catch the ball. Robinson, you know, I think is very capable of of of, of doing what he needs to do as a receiver, as a runner, as a pass blocker, all of those things. As long as he holds up and doesn't have some type of you know compensatory injury or anything like that, he's going to be fine. He's going to do enough because he's going to. It's going to give you what you need, even if he's not necessarily as explosive as he looked in week one throughout throughout the whole year. I think he is a, a problem for ETN. It, it was pretty clear in week one. You now need to get huge weekly, like total expected points numbers, huge weekly pies in both Jacksonville and New York for those picks to work out, especially for the most expensive players. Now, the fact that ETN could have easily worked out in week one and that Brees Hall basically does because of all those, I mean, we had 19 targets to those two backs there with the Jets. And they both look good. Outside of that drop touchdown, Michael Carter looks fantastic. And one of the points you made to me before we jumped on about watching Thursday Night Football, and it's fun that we get to record this on Friday for a Saturday release before Week 2 really hits because we were responding to Thursday Night Football a little bit. We saw a second game. And I, you know, you made this point that you don't want to overreact to, to week one. You don't want to underreact, but we know that things are going to be different in week two. It's just easier to comprehend that when you look at 
a week two game and you've seen a second game for every team. And so with Austin Eckler, there was some mildly concerning things. I didn't think the routes were that concerning. He played all the snaps inside the tent. Oh, wait, now here in the second game, Sony Michelle gets their first goal line carry. They have a quarter break and Sony Michelle still on the field for the next play, even though he got stuffed to start the next quarter at the goal line. So now we have. This game was a disaster for Eckler. Not good for Eckler at all. He winds up with a decent stat line catching a number of balls lady. I think he had three on their final drive that I talked about where Josh Palmer caught the last touchdown winds up getting to like 18 PPR points. And that's something you can do. He catches nine balls in this game, but he hasn't been very efficient running the ball so far. If he's not going to be very efficient on the yardage side, you're going to need nine or 10 catches because he's looking like he's not going to have a lot of touchdowns either. If he's not going to get the goal line work, I'm not completely out on Eckler, but it was, it was a disaster. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it was the opposite of what made Eckler vault to a first round player last year as in which was most he's always had the ability to catch nine balls and get enough total yardage but it was the touchdowns that, that made that happen at 20 scores last year it was the heavy usage around the goal line we, we see the opposite of that and it's a pretty big red flag because as we talked about a little bit last year without those touchdowns he's more like a you know a late second round player or third round player maybe in terms of, I know you're always talking about the, the expected points side, you know, so he's still going to have really strong expected points, but it's going to be like a good receiving back at this point. His rushing expected points are really boosted by the ability to get carries in close. And he's not going to have nearly enough rushing expected points. Now he's going to have really strong receiving expected points. He's going to have the ability to catch nine balls, but um, more of a floor, you know, a really good receiving back floor. If he doesn't have touchdown potential, that's not, you know, locked in stone. Nothing's locked in stone. But week two solidified that concern more, right? Because Michelle got that carry in close. Michelle did get stuffed. That's why I say it's not locked in stone. It's very possible their other backs can't get it done down close in Eckler by week four or five is their goal line back again because he's their best running back. Kansas City side, I talked about Pacheco. He only got a couple carries, but he looked really good late. I thought he might work in more early as a result. Late in week one, he had 10 carries in the fourth quarter, 10 of his 12, and was very efficient. Thought that might help him work in early in the game more in this one. He didn't really. He only had the two touches, and he wasn't particularly great necessarily on those two. Very small sample, obviously. But we saw a lot of CH. We saw a lot of McKinnon. I said to you, I, I feel like uh, I feel a lot different about the, the Kansas City backfield, mostly because I felt like all the backs looked really efficient in week one. They tried to go to McKinnon on the ground a few times. He only runs for three yards to carry Pacheco's. Again, two carries, three yards of carry. CH before the 52-yard run, where he's literally just trying to protect the ball and running through the hole, and they're grabbing at the ball, kind of, and they grab his face mask. Didn't even look like he was, you know, he finally gets into space and then and takes one hand off the ball and starts running hard. Again, I'm not trying to take anything too much away from him, but, like, as far as 52-yard runs go, it wasn't the most electric individual running back effort I've seen on a 52-yard run. We'll put it that way. Other than that run, looked very average about three yards to carry on on his part after week one, you said to me that we kind of maybe should have hold Ronald Jones in some of these really deep leagues because their offense looks so good. If he ever does get an opportunity, you could see him being kind of a, a league winner. And I was like, that's a really interesting take on how week one went because everyone else that I was in, you know, co-managing with that I, that I have Ronald Jones shares with, they, they wanted to, to cut him naturally because it, I, I did too immediately. My, my thought was, the play with Jones was to see if he's active in week one or to see if the Kansas City runners struggle and they were very effective in week one. Week two, they all sort of struggled. 
And I think it looked a lot more like they could use Ronald Jones in this backfield. And this is one of the reasons that we do try and play some of these explosive offenses through the least expensive parts because you are going to have some split in how the volume plays out to pay up for the stars puts you in a situation where you have to be right and you don't necessarily get the full benefit. I mean, even having Travis Kelsey, a player, you're going to be very happy that you had at the end of the season, but you don't necessarily get the full benefit because of what you had to pay. And so Jerick McKinnon was on the zero RB watch list. I think that this game illustrated exactly why he's there and what the upside could be. I mean, it's basically a Naheem Hines kind of role, but with the potential for that to emerge into what he was in the reality playoffs last year. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the Colts is that they do use Hines actually down there in the red zone for some of these sneaky types of plays. Some handoffs, obviously you see that McKinnon receiving touchdown. I think he's the guy who can really offer that to them. And then Jones still here because of the way that CEH has scored in these first two games, even while not really looking like anything. And again, illustrates the upside there for Jones if he gets in. One of the reasons to hold him, and I think that you continue to hold him after you see the Chiefs struggle again. I mean, you're saying keep holding a guy who's been inactive two weeks, but this Chiefs offense is going to score, but we can see that they struggle when they don't have the playmakers out there. And so, especially right now, where you don't have other extremely compelling pickups. In the article that put in together, we have the FFPC waiver report tool. And one of the kind of cool things there, you see Jordan Mason, 940 ads last week, the average winning bid, 87. Zach Moss, 411 ads, the average winning bid, 82. Dontrell Hilliard, who doesn't get added quite as much because I think he was drafted more, 342 ads, 163 in terms of the average winning bid. This is a player who was sort of the receiving backup to Jeremy McNichols last year. He has 14.5 receiving fantasy points over expectation in week one. Obviously, the takeaway there is that those are fluky plays. Now, I often like to point out that fluky plays can lead to a bigger workload if the player executes the play and shows the kind of electricity that you want from an impact player. He did that on his two plays. As I was kind of digging into it today, I was surprised to find that the Titans were actually more middle of the pack in receiving expected points to the running back last year than I realized. It wasn't a huge difference sort of pre and post Henry injury, but they jumped into the top 15. Again, not a team that's going to load you down with a bunch of points there, but after he was hurt, if something were to happen to him or they don't get the offensive production from the receivers that they need, you could see the running backs being involved in this offense. And yet with Hassan Haskins also kind of right there, the fact that someone like Dontrell Hilliard, who doesn't actually have a role and you probably can never start is a big running back pickup. I think that also encourages you to really focus on stashes who could make a big difference later, as opposed to just picking up last year's or last week's guy who who you probably can never really play. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So rather than stashing players that do have some role, but or current role, but it looks like they're not going to have. So Hilliard's one of those players who had a good week one role or had good week one production and looks like he's going to continue to have a role, but rather than stashing some of those types of players, there's an argument. We were talking a little bit about Jones. There's an argument for stashing players that don't have a role, don't look particularly interesting, but if things break in the right way for them, could really gain a ton of value and could 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 be bigger producers, not necessarily than Hilliard was this past week because Hilliard obviously put up a lot of points, but what Hilliard was able, is going to be able to give you most weeks going forward because this will probably be his biggest week of the season. Exactly. And when you and I were talking, Isaiah Spiller is a name who comes to mind in that category. Now in a lot of leagues, obviously he's going to be locked if he is on waivers because they've already played, but someone to kind of keep an eye on next week when all of the excitement and focus will be on players who emerge this Sunday. A guy who probably isn't freely available in leagues, but might still be available at prices where if you picked someone up on waivers and someone else in your league actually wanted that pickup, but they either didn't have the waiver priority or they didn't bid high enough because they didn't, they miscalculated the market. Eno Benjamin would be somebody who had a very good first week within the context of what you would hope. His teammates don't play a lot. He looked good. He I mean, looked better than James Conner because the Cardinals were so bad. It might be a situation where the focus on him isn't so great that you couldn't pick him up. Someone who didn't play in week one and now looks like, he could have a role in week two because my understanding as we record this Ben is that Damian Williams is not going to play in week two. He's out. Tyler Algier will be another one. Yeah. And so Tyler Algier, another one for sure. He's one. That's where I thought you were going to go when you were talking about, Eno. he's one that if he got cut in some, you know, shallower leagues, obviously a lot of our listeners are in your, 
your normal leagues. We, we talk a little bit more about, you know, high stake stuff or deeper leagues sometimes. But if you're in a 15-man roster, 16-man roster league, it seems like Algier, I mean, he might not even be drafted, but probably after week one was cut. He seems like a really nice one to try to grab before this Sunday. I'm sure a lot of people will already be on that. But if you're in a league that's maybe a little slow moving, doesn't see that Damian Williams was out, grab him, get a peek at what his role could look like. It could be a lot more impressive. Avery Williams was the active third running back there. He's a special teams or he played some, but part of the reason Cordero Patterson had 20, it was 22 carries was uh, because the only other active running back was a special teams running back. That was six more carries than Patterson had in any game last year. And he was heavily used last year. He said uh, he beat his top rushing EP numbers from his 2021 breakout season so his workload in week one this year was more valuable purely as a rusher than any of his rushing workloads right. were a season ago and i don't think that's what they want to do i mean obviously patterson is somebody if you have him on a zero rb team you're excited and you're going to ride him as far as you can i mean he's a great guy when we talked about like the frankenstein running back you know uh in the offseason he's a great guy to get you through the first several weeks and potentially longer you never really know but his role is probably not going to be as large as week one. That was dictated by Damian Williams barely playing. Tyler Algier would be the guy that would probably play what they wanted Damian Williams to play in week one. Obviously, Damian Williams got hurt right away. He did end up returning a little bit, but they are keeping him out this week. Obviously, a fairly significant injury if they're keeping him out the following week. So Algier, really nice one to stash for week two. Probably the best of all of these. Eno is a great one, too, though. And you mentioned... I mean, both Daryl Williams and Jonathan Ward, and Ward was one that I, I think you were telling me was getting a little buzz late in August, right? But both of them were active, played on special teams, did not get a single offensive snap. I mean, not even didn't even play. So Eno was very clearly the number two. Uh, we don't usually get that much clarity, so that was pretty exciting. And you mentioned Spiller. Right now, you know, Sony Michelle gets some of the goal line work. We talked about that. Joshua Kelly looks like more, you know maybe more like the the number two. He's running some routes and things, but I mean if those guys aren't getting the job done and they haven't really done anything to to look amazing, if they're not getting the job done over time, what has been clear is that they they're willing to actually cut back Eckler, which was some of the buzz in the offseason. It seemed like that might not be possible based on who was backing him up and the bad news about Spiller and everyone else. It does seem like they want to find someone to play alongside him, and if these other guys fail. That will be a valuable role if Spiller can work into it. So he makes a lot of sense as somebody else to just stash. We mentioned Brojo. We're talking about backfields. I mean, I think it's the key point. We're talking about backfields that could be very valuable for the backs. And so, you you know, there's this expected value equation. What is the probability of something occurring and what is the payoff when it occurs? And that's how you are supposed to determine whether a long shot bet is worth placing, whether a you know, even odds bet is worth placing. What's the probability and also what's the payout? So, you know, at even odds, that's the payout. In long shot, there's a, a much higher payout. You have a much lower threshold in terms of what the probability needs to be. I think in fantasy, you know, what the probability needs to be for that to be a good bet for me to finish that thought. But in fantasy, I think the mistake that people make with this running back churn discussion we're ha having is there's way too much focus on the probability of an event occurring. Who is actually on the field? Who's getting snaps? Who do I know will at least give me something? Who do I think is likely to get injured? And so I want that guy's handcuff because he's got the injury-prone starter. There's way, there's a lot of focus. It seems to be almost all of the focus in terms of 
which running backs people are stashing. And so it's all about what have you done for me lately and what has actually happened. And I would argue that, that it should be almost completely flipped, not just that there should be more focus on the size of the payout and less on the probability, because we can't really identify the probability well, but that we should not, not just that that should be equitable, that there should be almost way more focus on the size of the hit, which is, I think, the way that I would describe the way you've always played it. And whenever we talk, we're talking about backfields where the payoff would be really large and not necessarily worrying so much about how that can happen because it's so hard to predict the chaos in the NFL season. And I joked a little bit on the earlier show this week about actually just taking a zero in the RB2 slot on one of my teams. Now, that's easier to talk about in light of the rest of the players scoring a ton of points. You always feel better about it when it seems like it's working out. But the stashes that I wanted to make during the draft for that team were J.K. Dobbins and Ken Walker. And already here in week two, it looks like we're closer to something like that paying off than to guaranteeing points in week one. Now, what you think about the decisions on like round 16 through 20 and, and all that is a little bit different. But exactly what you're saying, where we need these bets to pay off in a big way if we're going to win when you look at what happened down the stretch of the 2021 season where zero RB candidates dominated tournaments, it was because they had that upside. And the thesis for them originally was based on exactly what you were saying, that if things broke the right way, not just that they would play, but they would play in a way that would score a lot of points. That's one of the reasons I'm, I guess I'm struggling a little bit with the 49ers backfield. We mentioned how popular those guys were as pickups. I think that you have to pick those guys up the prices that were paid or the the free agent bidding dollars that were paid out were not exorbitant. And so uh, people were being a little bit restrained as you would expect as they make those bids. And then if things fall in the right way the next week, then maybe it works out for you because it, it has to, the number of people involved in that mix has to get smaller still, right? We look at what happened last week. Jeff Wilson gets a couple of carries inside the 10 more or less gets Stone there. Debo gets a couple carries, is able to make it pay off. When you're in a backfield that still is uncertain, where we have Wilson and we have Davis Price, we have the trendy Mason, all possibly factoring in over the next month, over this time period that Elijah, Elijah Mitchell is out, but also you have Debo and you have Trey Lance. I think that understanding the history is important and understanding the big games that this offense has produced for running backs is important, but it's also important to realize that that was not really in the same context that had a Debo Samuel and that had what we hope is an elite rushing quarterback. And so when we're looking at backfields that we want to target, I don't necessarily think that the 49ers is that backfield. And I guess I don't necessarily think that the Saints are that backfield the way they might've been in the past. That's kind of an interesting one where, I mean, it's not really a running back. <laughs> He's tight end eligible, but not running back eligible but Taysom Hill may be like the starting quarterback and the starting running back for the Saints this week sounds like Jameis Winston's questionable but obviously going to play almost certainly but the running backs are like actually questionable and they don't maybe the weirdest play I saw last week Ben to go on a little bit of a digression was the two-point conversion that ended up not coming back to kill them because the Falcons then did subsequently make some more unfortunate mistakes but on the key play of that game or what could have been the key play of that game, going to Mark Ingram for a two-point conversion. 
use your best players. Now, one of the issues there may be just that already Alvin Kamara, not anywhere close to 100%. There are some backfields like that, or I guess specifically the Saints, where now maybe even in the next 48 hours, people will be digging deep to find a potential starter in that game on Sunday. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Fun fact about Mark Ingram, the only active running back in the NFL who has more career touches than Ezekiel Elliott, which I was looking up the other day in relation to Ezekiel Elliott. Um, the, the 49ers thing, what I was hearing you say is that is actually a situation where the market is valuing the size of the payoff element of the EV equation I was talking about before. And they're doing so in sort of a pattern matching way based on the size of the payoff in this backfield in the past. We have seen it enough times that you almost have to acknowledge that it exists. And yet what you're arguing is that the size of the payoff, maybe not in this situation, maybe not as high as expected. And I think it's right. I mean, Debo Samuel got carries from the four and the six yard line. He's going to be part of their green zone rushing attack, as I like to write about. And you mentioned Trey Lance's too. I mean, he got a lot of design carries. Part of that was the weather. But I mean, he's going to run some some balls inside the 10. We've seen it with Jalen Hurts over the last few years. These young running quarterbacks, they, they add elements as rushers in close. We've seen it obviously with Josh Allen, Cam Newton back in the day. One of my you know big excitements for Trey Lance this year was that he could run for eight or 10 touchdowns potentially. And so you have a challenging path from that regard in, in terms of you know, are these running, you know, Jeff Wilson probably gets some work in close, but is he splitting so much of that, that he's mostly a trap back that he's, you know, as I've written before, that he's mostly getting low value touches. He's not catching enough balls out of the backfield because Lance is probably not going to be a huge check down guy with his mobility. I think Wilson's an interesting play. If you could get him cheap, like you said, or you already had him stashed. He looks like he's going to, the way I see the backfield going I mean, after Elijah Mitchell went down, it was just Wilson. And Mason was active for special teams. I've heard that as an argument in favor of TDP, that Mason was active for special teams. They didn't even use him. So the inactive TDP, much like the Algier point we were just making, might be the better option, Tyrion Davis-Price. But, like, I don't know that that's exactly the way that it went in San Fran. You know, like it might just be that they didn't like TDP a whole lot. And part of the reason they didn't use Mason is they do have Lance and Debo, and, and they just – they weren't ready to use the rookie or, and, and I don't know that that means that they'll be ready to use Tyrion Davis price who's also a rookie basically. So I, I kind of expect the rushing attack this week to be mostly Jeff Wilson and then Debo and Trey Lance, which could be enough for Wilson to have a decent line. It will be interesting to see if, if Tyrion Davis price or, or Jordan Mason are involved. I mean, those guys are very much worth stashes in, in the way that we're talking about the other players. If you're in a league with those guys are available, I think, I'm more excited about Mason personally, just because he seemed to be so good in the preseason. Tyrion Davis price seemed to not be. And it's like, I think Kyle Shanahan has shown us in the past, he's willing to go with the guy that's like sort of the hot hand and playing well and doesn't really care about draft capital. But you said to me the other day when we were talking, is he really going to do it two years in a row to himself and just admit that the third round running back he took was a complete waste. And I mean, that's a good point. Like it would take a lot of humility to, to it's probably the right thing to do. If, if you're wrong, it was probably the right thing to do with Elijah Mitchell and Trey Sermon last year. But to admit that you did it two years in a row, found a really cheap, viable runner, and the third round pick that you took was just a wasted pick. You just can't keep burning those picks. You can't keep burning those picks. I mean, somebody has to step in and say, we're going to take a different position. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially because they're hitting on the other running backs late. I mean, 
but that's that's assuming too much about Jordan Mason. But he looked better in the preseason. That was the whole thing. He beat out Trey Sermon. He ran well in the preseason. That's why I, you know, I'm a little bit more interested in seeing him than Tyrion Davis Price. But either way, those two guys feel like they're more just stashes. Wait and see if they even have a role, and that it's probably going to be Jeff Wilson and a lot more Debo. I think running the ball than even last week. But last week we got the indication in a in a run heavy situation in the rain they were going to use Debo just like they did down the stretch last year. So. And Debo profiles for now a gigantic workload because he's not going to disappear as a receiver either. The first game with all the rain covers up a little bit what their passing offense is going to do. I think it's a positive for him to do both because, you know, those goal line touches are difficult to replace in any other way. It'd be true for a receiver who gets some of them just like a running back. We talk about the legendary running back upside and how you need to have some goal line touchdowns. Well, if you're Debo Samuel and you can add some goal line touchdowns, that's only going to help you. We yeah, didn't if, know if he was going to get any of that because right. on the offseason, the contract talk was, oh, maybe he doesn't want to do it and they'll respect that. It seems like he just wanted a new contract and right. that's mostly fine. And after he got the contract, he did say, like, I don't care about being called a wide back. Again, it was like, it, you know, it came out pretty quick. As soon as he got paid, it was, I'll do whatever it takes to help the team win. But you're, I mean, I'm completely with you on that too. Like the, the, Yes, he's got to regress from his ridiculous rushing efficiency, but also he's an incredible rusher. Like he's very clearly, you said to me the other day when we were talking about the four and six yard runs, good luck stopping Debo Samuel on that. And the the Niners know it. They're going to give him the ball in close. And he's been to this point very, again, he got two carries inside the 10. He converted one for a touchdown. So that efficiency has started, you know, is carried over. How long are we going to sit here and talk about regression? He's probably not going to score touchdowns at the same rate, but he's probably going to score them at a higher than average rate. Because he's good luck stopping him. He's very good. And the way that they run with him is on the edge and you get more space. And he's very physical. And Shanahan had a quote this week that basically said they were asking him if they were worried about the extra hits for Debo. And he basically said the way that he plays wide receiver, he all, most of his plays end the same way with, with contact. He's, he's still seeking contact after the catch. It's, it doesn't really make a difference. And people might argue, hey, well, he's getting more touches overall if you give him eight carries and four catches. He's getting 12 touches and there's 12 contacts every game. And, you know, it's not the same if he's a receiver catching six or seven balls. He's only getting six or seven. But it doesn't seem like Shanahan cares, right? Yeah, it and like it's just Shanahan. one of those things in fantasy where every time your guy touches the ball, he's more likely to get hurt than on the plays he doesn't. It doesn't mean you can't have non-contact injuries too. But in order to score points, they have to touch the ball. So you have to yeah. live with some of that in the first place. I was just going to say – to, to wrap up San Francisco, I think you said it incredibly well that like the up the all, everything we're saying about Debo goes back to whether or not those stashes are going to be incredibly valuable. You kind of need Jeff Wilson to be the only back that's used this week if you're going to get anything there because if they're using three backs and Debo and Lance, it's not going to work. It definitely gets a lot trickier. One of the things you mentioned, Davis Price being inactive, one of a number of interesting backs who not only didn't play but were simply inactive. It was a theme with some of the younger backs that they either didn't play an offensive snap or weren't active. We also saw Damian Pierce disappoint. That was a little bit of an odd game. He obviously wasn't running well, wasn't accomplishing the same things he did in the preseason, but they went away from him pretty quickly for someone they had named the starter. Rex Burkhead, I think, is good. I think if he were actually a focal point on an elite offense, people would see him as being good. So it's not some gigantic surprise that they went away, but it's still, again, just a little bit odd, especially when they're leading in that game for a big chunk of it. Maybe they're thinking we're leading. We want the veteran to not make mistakes. 
But another one that I thought was interesting was Amir White. And that's a backfield where I had some pretty high hopes that Amir Abdullah would be involved as a receiver. Definitely not the case. The Raiders trail, and yet, as we talked about on our wide receiver show, that really put the emphasis on Devontae Adams. They have Adams, they have Waller, they have Hunter Renfro. It may just be very different from the situation in New England where the talent was, at least at the end of McDaniel's tenure there, was at the running back position. I I will say we don't say nice words about somebody like Josh Jacobs. It was a great week one for Josh Jacobs, even though everything you're saying is true where they didn't focus on the running back. Zamir White doesn't touch the ball and and is active. He uh, Jacobs runs more routes than either uh, Bolden or Abdullah. They both run some. I think their combined route rate was either – I think it was the same as Jacobs. It was very close. It might have been slightly more. It might have been slightly less. I can't remember exactly. But Jacobs had the bulk of the, the running back routes to the extent that, like, the other backs combined were right around where he was. I didn't expect that from him with the talk of the James White role and everything. I mean, I think it was a pretty, and, and I expected Zamir to be taking some of the rushing. So I, I still don't think Josh Jacobs has like huge upside, but if you drafted him, like he's going to give you the floor at least now. Like we, if this role sticks, we, we were skeptical he'd even give you the floor. And, and I, I, I want to throw that out there. I thought this was a positive outcome for people who, who drafted Jacobs. Yeah, and you think about the game last night and what they did to the Chiefs. I, I think that Raiders offense is going to score a ton of points. The fact that, they struggle a little bit with the Chargers, not a huge red flag. The other thing, Jacobs was fantastic as a carrier, 30% evasion rate. Now, obviously, that's much easier to do in a tiny sample, but it is something where in week one, you want to see your guy come out there and break some tackles. And he can do that. He had the yards per carry that maybe wasn't part of his profile early in the career. Again, in one week in a tiny sample, some of those things happen, but it's still better for them to happen than to not happen. It's better to be where he is right now than where Chase Edmonds is right now, where Chase Edmonds, I have to feel like, is getting some pressure for his role as the early down back there. My thought on Zamir White is that if they actually aren't going to emphasize the running back in the passing game, maybe that actually creates a scenario where he's more viable. Again, we're talking about later on in the season. He's not going to jump Josh Jacobs after what happened there in week one, but I almost get more excited about his potential if they can unleash him as a run emphasis type of back they're maybe not taking that back off the field as much to get those receiving backs in play he's someone who becomes a little bit interesting almost in a counterintuitive way after week one yeah i I would i mean i the worry for me with the raiders was that there would be so split with two early down backs and a pass catching back that no, no one would have value and that's kind of what we saw with the patriots in week one ty montgomery took most of the third downs both Harris and Stevenson played on early downs. There wasn't enough running back production overall. It didn't work. Montgomery's now on IR. It might not be what happens with the Patriots going forward, but that's sort of what I'm using as sort of my thought for what I was worried about with the Raiders. What we see from Jacobs at least shows philosophically that McDaniels wasn't thinking about it that way necessarily. So now if Jacobs gets injured, it might be that Zamir White gets that type of role. I did just look up the routes, by the way, for anyone who was curious and wanted to know the actual numbers instead of just my memory. Jacobs, 39% routes per drop back. Bolden and Abdullah combined for 39. So it was the exact same amount. They ran the same number of routes, Jacobs, and then the rest of the backfield combined because White didn't run any, didn't play any offensive snaps. But I, I'm with you on the kind of counterintuitive positive for Zamir White in that they showed a willingness to kind of lean on one back 
as both the lead rusher on early downs and presumably goal line back. We didn't really get a lot of goal line work from them. And then um, also potentially the lead route runner, even though he's the early down back, right? There wasn't so much of a third down back. He's only, you know, that, that, that Jacobs is coming off on every passing play or every passing situation. If White wound up in that role down the stretch, I I agree. I mean, that would be that would obviously be very positive. Do you have any other deep backs to throw in here? Did you have I, I the Dolphins one was hard for me to really evaluate because I'm so biased because I drafted so much Mostert down the stretch. Both of these guys were getting hit at the line of scrimmage. They didn't have routes to run through uh, or holes to run through. Edmonds led in snaps 38-25, but I mean, both those guys, 41 total yards on 17 carries. Neither one of them broke a tackle or forced a missed tackle. I I saw a lot of optimism about Edmonds' role. The Dolphins were the pass-heaviest team relative to expectation, that pass rate over expected stat that I talk about. Part of that was they had the lowest expected pass rate because they were leading and they're in a lot of situations where it looked like they should be running and they were willing to continue to throw. Their actual pass rate was pretty average. So it's not like they're, you know, a lock to be massively pass heavy. It's more like they just kept their same offense rolling, even though they were winning. Having said that, they threw a lot. Edmonds did get to run a lot of routes and he caught some passes for four receptions, but I was also concerned as it related to this backfield with and Emma's route rate was really good, but with uh, Alec Ingold running some routes, I talked a little in the off season that I, they, they gave him a pretty big fullback contract, very similar to when Lynch and Shanahan took over in San Francisco and they gave Kyle Juszczyk a huge fullback contract. They basically gave Alec Ingold the second biggest fullback contract in the league. They have him out running routes, playing the Kyle Juszczyk role. Like we immediately saw that he didn't run a ton of routes Ingold got two targets and they used Tyreek Hill a lot around the line of scrimmage, which is something we talk about, sort of the Debo Samuel role. He was in motion a ton and doing a lot of things. He gets 12 targets. I actually think, you know, Edmonds run, ran a lot of routes, but it was low-key bad for his receiving outlook, the way that they went so pass-heavy, and he only basically got four targets. He caught four for 40. Probably should have had an even bigger day in terms of what his upside case is with the reasons you talked about with the rushing, the holes weren't there and there wasn't a lot. And it doesn't really add up for me in Miami. I, 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 I'm, I I thought his role was fine and strong and, and everything as much as anyone, the routes he ran and everything. But I, I saw a lot of like tweets and commentary that was more optimistic about better days ahead for Edmonds than I would classify myself as being. You mentioned, uh, whether there were other names, the biggest thing before we close that I want to mention on this show is we talked about Eno and how the backups were active and didn't play any snaps. Samaje Pirine in Cincinnati, same deal. I thought this was a theme of week one. You don't usually see this, but with the Cardinals, they basically pulled Connor a little early because they're getting blown out and they still only went with one backup, even though they had two others active, didn't play a snap. In Cincinnati, they they run 94 offensive plays. Mixon hobbled off once or twice, but he, he played all throughout. I don't think it was anything serious. But Chris Evans, active, played on special teams, did not play an offensive snap. P. Ryan was the only guy to come on for him. Not No single passing down or anything that Evans got a snap for. I think that solidified him. You wrote in your article, which is fantastic for anyone. I mentioned at the top of the show, I wasn't sure if you had, had, had written that up or if I had heard you correctly. But um, a great zero RB playbook, deep stashes, trades, buy lows, sell highs, 
it's it's structured very well. I pulled it up while we we're reading. Uh, definitely something to go check out. You wrote that Rashad White cemented himself as a clear handcuff. Keyshawn Vaughn maybe a slight headache in the sense that he was inactive. If something were to happen to Fortnite, he's active. But Bernard was active and didn't play an offensive snap. Another guy who the, the theme being these third backs that were active didn't play at all. That was a little bit of a blowout. Rashad White got five of his six carries after Fournette's last touch. And it was just him. It was no one else coming in. Oh, and then Jalen Warren is the last one. Benny Snell active, played on special teams, did not get an offensive snap. Najee Harris left early. Jalen Warren pretty much showed that he's the clear number two in Pittsburgh. So those are all like, I don't think we get that much clarity on handcuffs in week one, but those are all, I think, you're never certain that if an injury happens, that guy's going to be the guy. But they're very clearly in my in my mind now the best bets to be the guy, right? The size of the payoff matters. Jalen Warren, the size of that payoff, not going to probably be huge. The other three are good offenses. So Rashad White, Samaje Pion, Eno Benjamin, guys that even if they don't do a lot, I'm holding on to now for several weeks. They're, they're good pieces to have in a running back build. And it's always one of those tricky dynamics because they don't want players to get hurt. And yet, obviously, P. Ryan is not going to really be a difference maker unless Mixon does get hurt. Mixon took some wicked hits. And he actually looked like he was seriously injured late in that game and then was back in like two plays later. So thankfully, not not all the times when the guys go down sort of writhing in pain or twisted up in a way where it looks bad. Not every time is the guy out for weeks. So that's that's good news. If you have P. Ryan, and in, in, like I said, we have P. Ryan almost everywhere. Number one, this was great. Number two, it does always come down to that unfortunate situation of the injury. But Ben, you and I were chatting a little bit before the show about some of the bets from this week. And I know you're excited to get your betting content out after we chat. Dalton hit on some really great plays for your Stealing Lines project in week one hit on Saquon Barkley to lead the league in rushing yards that had 40 to one out. Yeah. Big That's hit. Awesome. Awesome. My question for you was, it seems like there, I mean, I would say there's probably not a prop for this. I'm, I'm not into the, the betting stuff. I'm excited for that at some point down the line, quite possibly as a, a stealing lines enthusiast. Did you guys hit on some AJP Ryan to lead running backs in air yards for week one? <laughs> that was, I don't think they post the air yards props, but um, I didn't even know that stat. That's a great, great poll. Samashe Piran. I'm a big running back air, air yards fan. There you go. I thought that you would like that. Well, then that will do it for today's episode of Stealing Bananas. We'll be coming to you uh, at probably a little bit of an inconsistent tempo, but as many shows as we can record, we will have out there. We enjoy chatting about football and fantasy so much. We hope that you guys enjoyed as well. I'm Sean Siegel with me as always. is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretch. Sign up for Stealing Signals. Sign up for Stealing Lines. Join us over at Rotoviz. Then I can't wait for week two. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. We'll talk to you guys soon. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. 
and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.